Father, thank you for your mercy to us in our Lord and Savior, and thank you for bringing these friends together today. And as we continue to delve into this small epistle that your apostle wrote so many years ago, and yet still continues to have a vitality and a vibrancy for the way in which we reflect on you and our lives, I pray, God, that you will help us to see and to understand. And Lord, we know that if any of that happens, it's only because of your kindness and your grace to us. Thank you already this morning for feeding us on your word, both heard in the preached word and at the table. And we're grateful. Our hearts are full, Lord. And thank you for coming and meeting us once again. And we ask these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. I'd like to officially retitle the class. <laughs> Thought about this. It's no longer going to be, I'll keep the, the primary title, The Supremacy and Sufficiency of Jesus, but the subtitle is no longer going to be a study in Colossians. I've made an executive decision. It's going to be a study in Colossians 1. Um, I realize we have two more weeks. We're not going to get beyond it. I just I realize that. Um, so if you're okay with that, you can leave now if you're frustrated. Um, but we'll, we're going to do uh, Colossians 1 if that's okay. Um, so, uh, oh, Bibles. Well, apps or whatever. Um, I wanted to press on from where we ended last week at verse 8. If you remember correctly, we saw that Paul, um, as he begins his letter to the Colossians, does so as is his want, and that is he offers them grace and peace, which is the traditional Christian formula of blessing and introduction. Um, Grace, which grounds any talk of peace, so that there is actually probably a logical and a temporal priority to the ways in which Paul is talking about these things. I offer you grace that comes from our Lord, which in turn leads to peace. There is no shalom. There is no wholeness. There's no human flourishing apart from the interior reality that God is gracious to us, that he is for us, the gospel, right? And he moves from that into prayer. I thank God Eucharisteo, right? The Eucharist. I give thanks to God for you every time that I'm in prayer or that we're in prayer together. I'm thanking God. So we saw last week that a major ingredient of Paul's prayer life was number one, thanksgiving. We're going to move to the second part of that a little bit this morning, and that is intercession. But his lead when he prays is thanksgiving. And if you can recall from our talk last week, thanksgiving from a kind of larger biblical theological framework, thanksgiving is in and of itself the opposite of idolatry. To be thankful, to be in a spirit of gratitude, is a recognition that all things come of thee, and of thine own have we given thee. I love singing that on Sunday. Even on those Sundays where I do this to the usher, right? (laughs) But um, all things come of thee, O Lord. I I thought about this morning. That's an awkward moment every Sunday. Next week, right? Um, all things come of thee, O Lord, and of thine own have we given thee. You are, you are. We thank you. We are grateful, um, and we live our lives in that the reality of that gratitude. We're going to press to that this morning a little bit. So we, we, I thank the Lord for you always. Why? Because I've heard of your faith. I've heard of your acknowledgement that what God has done in Jesus is true, and that you believe it. And not not only that you believe that it's true, but you believe in it. 
It's not just a cognitive reality. It's also an experiential and affective one. And we recognize last week as we look at from a larger Pauline perspective that faith is not something that we can muster up from within ourselves. Faith is a gift. Faith is something that God gives to us. I mean, even this morning, if I can just use an illustration from our own family, uh, uh, my, uh, a former student of mine, uh, Justin Jones. Justin, where did you, where'd you sit? Back here is, is here. Justin is a graduate of Beast, and he's a pastor now at First Presbyterian of Meridian. He's getting, as he told me this morning, he's getting his Anglican on today. He's got a day off. <laughs> um, so we're glad to have uh, Justin here. And, uh, um, you know, I told Justin, I leaned over to him and said, I just want you to know, my boys don't normally act this well. Like, this is, I mean, they, they were on today. And Jackson, my middle son, looked at me and he said, Dad, I actually think I like this. And I was like, the heavens have opened on our family, right? And I looked at Jackson, I was like, you know what, we need to thank God for that, right? Why? Because faith, the enjoyment of God, the recognition that God is not against us, but in Jesus he's for us, is not something that we can sort of turn within, what we heard from Craig this morning, it's not something that we can turn within to find that. It demands that we look outside of ourselves. That is the nature of faith. It's the only human work, if I can use that term carefully, that is actually commiserate or corresponds with what God has done for us in Jesus. Why? Because it's by its very nature passive. It's not something that we do. Faith is a recognition that we're in a position to receive. So here's your faith. I've heard about your faith. I've heard that you have heard the announcement, the proclamation of Jesus and his kingdom, and that you have said, I believe that that is true and that that's for me. Which is, frankly, what we do every Sunday in worship, is it not? I believe that that's true, and I also believe that that's for me. So he says, I've heard about your faith. I've heard about the love that you have for your neighbor. So we see that faith grows into love. Again, faith grounds any move outside of us to love someone else. That's grounded in faith. And I've also heard about your hope that you have of the future. Recognizing that hope, faith, and love, or faith, love, and hope, that classic triad that comes from Paul but is so much a part of our Christian language. Our Christian dialect is grounded in this faith, hope, and love uh, framework, that those things all flow why? And Paul goes on to say, because the gospel was announced in your midst and it's growing fruit and it's bearing, it's growing and it's bearing fruit both in you and throughout the whole world. I mean, think about Paul saying that in the first century. I was reflecting on that. The gospel is growing and bearing fruit throughout the whole world. I mean, here's Paul who had made it up into Asia Minor and had made some trips, and possibly from this point, he's at, in Rome. But we're talking about a pretty narrow view on the world. Now, that was, of course, the center of the commercial and political and empirical world at that time with Rome. But think about it now, where we are in the 21st century. I mean, I, I, look, I think about this even in relation to some of the missionaries that have gone out from Beeson that we pray for in chapel every once in a while, that are in Burma, or the martyrs that we remember from the mountains of Peru, or those who are in Africa now, or those that are missionaries in China. I mean, the world has, the gospel has gone out to the world, and the hope that we have is, is that the gospel is growing and bearing fruit throughout the whole world. And what does Paul do in, in light of all of that? He thanks God. Thank you, God, that you are doing that in our midst. 
And so from that thanksgiving, he moves into intercessions. I think, I mean, it's, again, I wouldn't be overly rigid, your prayers have to look like this, but it's a nice model here, I think. We move from thanksgiving, thanking God for what he's done in his son and the effect that that has had on his people, and then we move from that into intercession. And listen to what Paul prays for. I just want to read it to you. And so, from the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Ten, to lead a life worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints and light. And then two of my favorite verses in all the Bible, Colossians 1, 13 to 14, because he has delivered us from the dominion of darkness, from the kingdom of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So let's look here a little bit at what Paul prays. The first thing that he prays for them is that they would have a knowledge of his will in spiritual wisdom and spiritual understanding. A knowledge of his will. A knowledge of what God wants. A knowledge of God's own self-disclosure. What's the unspoken reality that Paul doesn't state, but that is necessarily demanded for him to say this? I believe it's the fact that God has disclosed his will. That God has disclosed his desires for his people. God has provided for us the means for spiritual growth, wisdom, and understanding. I mean, it is one of the most amazing features, frankly, of anything that we talk about theologically about God. And that is that God, who is infinite, he's beyond any conceptual apparatus that we can have to describe him, has by an act of his own self-determination spoken to us so that we can know him. Now, Calvin was famous for this. I mean, Calvin says that speaking of God to us is an act of accommodation. Like uh, what you do with your little grandchildren or your little children when you go to the crib and you begin to do the goo-goo-ga-ga, right? <laughs> Daddy loves you, right? Daddy wants you to do this. I mean, that's an act of human communication, but it's kind of, it's prattling, isn't it? So there's, that's, that's what God has done for us. He's prattled to us. It doesn't correspond to all that he is. That's beyond our mind. But he has given us a sufficient knowledge of who he is. We're going to come to that as we move into the famous hymn and the verses that come after this. God has spoken, and God is speaking. He's not left us to our own devices to try to figure out what his will is. Now, I don't know what world you come from. Right? Um, I come from a world that treated the will of God in a way that, frankly, bordered on the vo on voodoo, right? Did any of you come from a voodoo background with the will of God? Like, like you better you better sort of you know shake the trees or get the water wand or whatever that is, and because there's only you, you, if you choose the wrong thing, it's going to set you on a course, and you, you, and then you're down you, you know you're down a creek without a paddle. Um, and I think that that's a that's really kind of a bad way of understanding these things. And it's, it, another way of putting it, I want a professor who called it this way, it's pagan, it's not really Christian, to think of the will of God as something that we have to sort of look in the stars to figure out. God has given us his will, 
God has told us what he wants. God has told us his desire, his heart, his affection, what he values, what he prioritizes in his word. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. So Paul is praying for them. He's saying, I'm praying that you will grow in spiritual wisdom and in understanding. And I'm praying that that will happen primarily, as we're going to see, as the gospel takes root and continues to grow and to bear its fruit in in our lives. So he's praying for that. The next thing he prays for, now hold on here because this this might make you a little nervous, to lead a life worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. I mean, if there is anything within the Christian life where we can crash on rocks very quickly, it's in the discussion of good works, right? Why? Because we all have within us the desire, I think, to please God on our own merits. I think we're hardwired that way, to please God on our own merits. We cannot please God on our own merits. I mean, I think that's Advent Theology 101, and I'm so thrilled for that here. We cannot please God on our own merits. So then how then do we talk about good works in the lives of Christians? This is dubious ground, frankly, because there are rocks to be crashed on on every side. How do we talk about good works? I'm not sure, frankly, we can do better. Maybe we can, but we can do better than our own 39 articles of religion. If you ever get a chance to flip back in the Book of Common Prayer and read those 39 articles, there's a really great statement in there coming from Cranmer, about the role of good works. And here is what I think the best way of understanding it. Two little words to always think of when we talk about good works. And they are the words, by faith. By faith. Good works apart from faith, actually, and this is, you're not going to like this. I don't like it either. But I'm just telling you what Cramer says, so you take it up with him when you see him in heaven. (laughs) But Cramer says, apart from Christ... Apart from faith, our good works cannot add to our salvation. In fact, apart from faith, our good works can only add to our damnation. That's Cranmer. Luther would agree, and I think Calvin would give a hearty amen to that as well. So that doesn't mean, by the way, that all people are bad. Or, or Let me rephrase that. They are all bad. But it doesn't mean that all people are really, really bad. I mean, we see kindness happening all around. But I think the Pauline point is those acts of kindness have no salvific merit at all. The only merit that we have is that we are in Jesus. I love that. Did you hear the reading from Romans 5 today? In one man's disobedience, all fell into sin. And by one man's obedience, his act of righteousness on our account, which I would say is both Jesus' life and his death, both of those, his act of obedience and his passive obedience. He lived my life and he dies my death. That is the only means that I have of any interaction with God, never on the basis of my works, only on the basis of what he has done. So what then are good works by faith? I believe that good works done by faith, which the 39 articles say, are actually, like Paul says here, pleasing to him. But those works done by faith are works that recognize that in and of ourselves these works do nothing to make God smile on me outside of Jesus. But they only make sense and they only have their proper effect and they only have their proper role when they are done by faith in a recognition that my faith is in Jesus, 
and I do not get into my Christianity by faith and then try to seal it up and make sure that it's going to happen by my own works, that's bad too. It's a recognition that from A to Z, all of it is, in Paul's favorite terms here in Colossians, in Christ, all of it is in him. And a recognition that by faith that I'm secure, that I rest free in Jesus, that then frees us then to do good works in their proper sense, not, as we were talking, Jerry, about before, not because God needs them, but really, at the end of the day, because our, our neighbors do. So he's praying for them. He's praying that they will have a life that's pleasing to him and full of good works. If you, if you want a better, I mean, what I said, was, I mean, that was very paltry, but if you want something really good on this, Thomas Cramer wrote five or six homilies, little sermons, during the reign of King Edward VI. And when he wrote these sermons, he wanted them to kind of go out through the realm to let people know what this Protestant faith was all about. The first one was on reading the Bible. And the second one was, I believe, on justification by faith alone. And then he did another one on the role of good works and relates these things in a way that really, I think, functions from the standpoint of, of, of the gospel. I'll save time for questions, Lord willing, and you can correct me on all that. He prays that they'll be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Why? For endurance and patience. Do you hear these two words? With joy. I'm praying that you'll be strengthened in all power because you're going to have to endure and you're going to have to be patient with joy. And that's, again, not something that we can do on our own. And whenever you, we find ourselves in those moments of endurance and in those moments of patience where we're actually experiencing that in joy, I think we can all step back and go, wow, God is at work again to do his own pleasure within our lives and in our, and in our midst. Well, I want to move on. Uh, there's so much more there. It's great. Verse 13, he delivered us from the dominion of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Uh, the best way for me to think about these two verses, 13 and 14, is to raise the question, where do you have your citizenship primarily? How do we fundamentally understand our identity? When it comes to our own self, our selfhood, our identity, how do we frame that? What do we lead with when people say, who are you? Right. And I think Paul would say very quickly, we're members of a kingdom. We're in a realm that has a dominion. And that realm is the dominion and the kingdom of God's own son. My primary citizenship, Philippians chapter 1 or 2, our citizenship is already in heaven. We're already in him. That is one of Paul's favorite theological terms. And think about the importance of that. You are in Christ. That's who you are. You are in Christ. Now, I kind of understand the notion, the big umbrella of our salvation, primarily through the lens of in Christ. Everything flows from the priority of that reality of our union with Christ. I am in him. And because I'm in him, I know faith and justification, and the list goes on. Because I'm in Christ. I'm, I've been brought into him. I've been transferred from the other kingdom into the kingdom of his beloved son. Why? Because in him we have redemption. What is this redemption? It's the forgiveness of our sins. How do I have any access to be in that kingdom? 
I don't have any access other than to stand at the front door of that kingdom gate and say, I've, I have my sins forgiven. Um, you've heard about Martin Luther's famous dream, right? Where Satan begins to roll off the list of his sins at the judgment seat. And he begins to list every one of them. This is those, I mean, I grew up in a world where they would sort of use this as a manipulative ploy. You know, someday the big screen goes up before all humanity and your life gets on display. Boy, you, it's, that would be a bad day if that happens, right? There's your life and we're all eating popcorn and watching what's going on for you. Wow, Genlet really was bad. I mean, there's no doubt about it. And here's Luther has that experience in his dream and he looks to, the, to Jesus on the throne and he says everything he says is true. He's not lying. He's, even though he's the father of lies, everything he says is true. Except for one thing. And that I know the forgiveness of sins through the blood of the cross. And Jesus says, come on in. Right? I mean, that is what Paul is saying here. Our primary identity at one point was in the kingdom of darkness. That's where we belonged. That was our citizenship. That was our passport. Passport opens kingdom of darkness. That's where I'm from. But on the far side of the redemption, the forgiveness of sins that Jesus gives to us by faith in him alone, we stand in a place now where we say, my passport is a different location now. I'm in the kingdom of his son because of what he has done. I mean, this, this to my mind is so significant for how we come to terms with how we understand ourselves. Who am I? Who am I primarily? Prim and I've said this in other contexts, but I don't think it can be said enough. I am not primarily the person you see before you. Primarily, I am the one who is hidden in Jesus. And the fullness of that reality will be revealed when Jesus comes and establishes his kingdom forever. And then I get to meet myself. Isn't that interesting? You're going to get to meet your true self someday. Wow, that's what it looks like to be fully human. Because Jesus is fully human. And my citizenship is located in, in him. Well, let's move on, shall we? How are we doing on time? Colossians 1.15. Let me just, Colossians 1.15 to 20, I don't know if it gets better. I mean, we should just create Advent t-shirts from this class and print it on the back. I mean, listen to this. Next week, Amy Gibbs will have them. He, now, I will go ahead and say quickly, it's quite likely that Paul is taking from a pre-existent hymn or creed. Which says something, I think, about already within the Pauline apostolic period, there were these established creeds that people would say, that people knew, or they might even sing as well, that carried within it the content, the material content of their faith. We might see this on analogy to in time what would be called the Apostles' Creed. Uh, Philippians 2 is often referred to as the Philippians 2 him, he who knew no sin, took on the form of a servant and died the death of a cross so that we might... that These hymn fragments that you find, I believe that's probably the case here as well. Paul is drawing on something that comes before even his own apostolic work, or at least um, something that he's drawing on from the previous time. So here's this hymn. Here's this creed. He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. 
He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might have the preeminence. For in him all I mean, listen to this, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. I mean, do you know what this is saying in effect? I mean, if we get the aggregate whole of what 15 to 20 forces on us in toto. Now, we're going to break it apart. But when that whole thing just comes at you, I think the only thing we can walk away saying is, whatever view of Jesus we have, it's not big enough. It's not. I mean, whatever view of Jesus we have, it's not big enough. Because typically, and I, this is not necessarily bad, but, but typically... We tend to view Jesus primarily through the lens of our own narrative and story, right? Which is how we meet him. I mean, we don't meet him any other way. But we, we view Jesus through the narrative of our own story. I, was grown, I grew up in a Christian home, and I've always known Jesus, and I've loved Jesus. Or, or I was a pagan, and then God grabbed a hold of me. Or just over time, I find myself, I believe this. And whatever your conversion story happens to be, whether it's over time, or in a moment, or you just you know, grew up in the church... With the way we tend to think about this, and it's not bad, it's primarily through the lens of our own story and our own narrative. And that's how we meet him. But here Paul, I think, is saying, okay, that's good. But lift your eyes up and see something much, much bigger that your particular story is being drawn into. Your story is being drawn into something much bigger. If I can make a plug for, and I'm preaching to the choir because you're all Anglican liturgy types, right? But if I can put a plug in for why the liturgy is so rich and powerful, is because it does resist the tendency on Sunday morning to reduce the gospel story to the contract between me and Jesus alone. It forces me every Sunday when I say the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed, or we do the great Eucharistic prayers, it forces me to see my story, which is true and legitimate and important. It's mine. But my story is being brought into something much bigger. And for Paul, it's cosmic. It's cosmic. I mean, think about this even from the standpoint of the atonement. How do we understand the atonement? Jesus dies on the cross vicariously in your place for me and for you so that we could have the righteousness that he has, and he could take our sin, the great exchange. He gave us his righteousness while he took on our sin. And we believe that that is true at the atonement. I think more too. Jesus gave the foot to the devil at the atonement, right? He was victorious. He conquered sin and death in the grave. But here Paul says, you know what else though? It has cosmic, universal proportions to it as well. The whole universe, because of sin, in this great cosmic conflict between God's kingdom and sin. And think about how we tend to think of sin. We tend to think of sin primarily as the bad things that I do or you do. Paul understands sin to be that way too. But Paul also has another category for sin. I would call it an apocalyptic understanding of sin. Where sin is actually this personality, this thing this alien, hostile force that sets itself up over against God and his kingdom. It's what Paul talks about in Romans 7, where the law, which is good and holy, why? Because it comes from God. It's good and holy. But sin, 
that alien, apocalyptic thing, grabbed it and took what was good and holy and made it the means of our own death. Sin. So here, Paul understands this cosmic conflict between sin, the, the powers and the authorities that set themselves up over God and His kingdom, in conflict with God, and it's the cross where God brings all those things back into order again. Jesus is Lord over all. I mean, the Eastern Church often has an icon, Eastern Orthodox Church, and I'm really getting out of my realm here, but they have an icon where you'll often see it's Jesus Pantocrator, right? And Jesus on a throne with his hand out in blessing, and then another hand open with a sphere in it. Have you seen this icon before? Right? I mean, that, that's Colossians 1, 15 and following. Jesus is Lord over the whole universe, over it all. And his atonement has an effect both on us in bringing us out of the enslavement of our sin into the freedom of his son, but it also has a spillover effect that brings the whole universe which has been tainted by sin. The fall had a corrupting influence on the whole world that God is bringing that back into order now because of his, the atoning work of his son. He is Ponto Crotter. He is the Lord over the whole, the whole universe. So I think Colossians 1, 15 to 20 looks us square in the face and says to you and to me, whatever your view of Jesus is, it's time to kick it up a notch, right? Because he's much bigger than anything that we could have conceived. So can we press through this a little bit? Number one, he is the icon. He is the image of the invisible God. The Greek term there is icon. Isn't that interesting? He's the icon of the invisible God. What does that mean? That means that if we think about the ways in which we construct our understanding of who God is, Paul is going to tell us, along with John and frankly, the whole of the New Testament, you put your first foot forward when you start talking about God by looking at Jesus. Do you want to know what God is like? Don't begin with all of these abstract qualities although I believe all of them are true. I believe God is omniscient. I believe God is all-powerful. I believe God is, all, is everywhere. He's ubiquitous. I believe all those things. I think they're true. But Paul is saying, when you want to understand who God is first and foremost, don't begin with any preconceived notions of what God's godness needs to be like for him to be God. You begin with Jesus. You want to know what God is like? You look at Jesus, because he is the image of, of the invisible God. In John 1's language, he is the very exegesis, he's the very outpouring, he's the very explanation of the Father. Philip asked that question right before Jesus dies. Can you, can you show us the Father? Do you remember Philip asking that? I love these questions from the disciples. You know, like Luke 8, uh, if you understand these words that I'm giving you, you, know, you, if you have ears to hear, you will understand these things. And then the disciples go, we didn't understand that, right? <laughs> you know, I, just, just like, I, I like it, because I feel, see myself writing their story all the time, right? I mean, here's Philip saying, at the end of Jesus' ministry, right, can you show us the Father? And what does Jesus say? Oh, Philip, <laughs> how long have I been with you? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father, right? You want to know what God is like? Take a long and hard look in the face of Jesus because he is the very icon. He is the very image of the invisible God. In other words, I love this about Paul. He's so concrete. He's always resisting our instincts to move into abstractions. 
Paul's like, no, don't go to abstractions. Stay right here, because what, what's he fighting? He's fighting a philosophical impulse in the world of Colossae that wants to move to abstractions. And Paul is trying to ground them in the gospel and ground them in the reality of Jesus. Keep your feet planted here. Why? Because, and see, this is the big deal. Because right now, your instincts are to say, I got the Jesus and forgiveness thing, but that's not enough. I want more. I need more than that. I need some Gnostic goodies. I need some special insights into the mysteries of the world. And the Gnostics, this first century world, or at least neo-proto-Gnostics, offer me some of that. And Paul is saying again, your view of Jesus is too small. All the mysteries of the world, all the wisdom of God that you're looking for with what the Gnostics are offering you are found right here at the footstool of Jesus Christ. That's where it's found. He is the image of the invisible God. What's the next bit here? Oh, look at our time. This is too fun, isn't it? (laughs) He's the firstborn of all creation. He's the firstborn. Now, this kind of language drove the 4th century heretic Arius up a wall. Do you know who Arius was? Arius was the guy who was basically known for saying, and he was a very brilliant theologian, so I don't want to you know, paint a fair picture, but Arius still was a heretic. And Arius said there was a time when he was not, whereas Athanasius and the 4th century Trinitarians shot one back over the starboard bow, with what we say almost every Sunday in church, this is from Athanasius, glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now and will be forever. Take that Arius in the knee, right? That's a fight song. Those are fighting words, right? There was never a time when he was not. So we have a problem, though, because we have this firstborn language in the Bible. Firstborn. What does that mean? And this is where I think these 4th century... It's getting a little thick here, so fasten seatbelts. But this is where the 4th century theologians, I think, are so helpful. Basil the Great, Gregory of Nazianzus, Gregory of Nyssa, where they make a distinction between names that have to do with Jesus in his being, his essence. Think about what we said this morning in the Nicene Creed. God of God, light of lights. God of God. To be the Son of God means to share in the essence of the Father. That is not something you and I have. We have that by adoption. We don't share in the essence of God because we're not God. But the Son of God shares in His very essence in His being. So there's names that relate to God's being, His essence, but there's also names that relate to them on on the mode of relationality. The persons of God who share one essence but who also relate to one another. So that we can recognize that, and this sounds crazy, but we can recognize that Jesus is the eternally begotten one of the Father. That's not saying something about his being, so that he's lesser being than God. It's saying something about his relation to the Father. He's eternally begotten of the Son. So to say he's protokos, firstborn over all creation, to me says a couple of things. Number one, it tells us how Jesus relates to the Father. He is always begotten of the Father. Think about what Jesus does in his earthly ministry. Looking to the Father. My works are for the Father. I do this for the glory of the Father. It also tells us that Jesus is preeminent over all creation. He's preeminent. And we're going to see in a few verses that Jesus is the actual means of creating the world. He's the means by which the world is created. 
So that helps us go back to Genesis 1, and when we hear these words, and God said, let there be light, and what? Fiat Lux, there was light, right? When we see that, we recognize even in Genesis 1 that it's God's word that is the cause of the creation of the world. We can read Genesis 1 now in a much fuller and more robust Trinitarian way. What was that word? The Logos, the Son, the one who was before all things. He was the instrumental cause of the creation of the world. And yet the incarnation, Jesus coming into the world through a woman's birth canal, blows our hair back. You want to know why it blows our hair back? Because the very one who created the world and sustains it by an act of grace and determination to rescue us from our plight actually forces himself into the created order. Isn't that something? So that the, This is why the incarnation is so beautiful. Our salvation rests on it. That God in Jesus, the creator of the world, steps into time and space for you and for me to redeem us. And that means he's preeminent over all creation. And the other thing, too, is when you hear firstborn language, I teach in the Old Testament. I like that book a lot. When you hear firstborn language, you know what I hear? I hear Israel. Exodus chapter 4. Pharaoh, let my firstborn son go so that he may worship me. We heard it this morning, didn't we, in the temptation stuff? Uh, Craig did a fine job uh, speaking about this. I mean, Jesus goes out into the wilderness. He's there 40 days and he's there 40 nights, just like the 40 years. There's an analogy there. And where Israel, the old Israel, blew it in the wilderness, Jesus comes out of the wilderness triumphant over the tempting power of the devil. He is Israel incarnate. He is the firstborn son. All right, I'm going to stop. What do you want to talk about? Jim? Your uh, statement about see yourself as you really are. Reminded me of what C.S. Lewis said. Uh, said, I don't have a He said, I don't have a soul. I am a soul. I have a body, which is interesting. But on another hmm. note, if Paul was such a threat to, you know, to the Romans, how was he able to write all this and to get it out? The people I think of, uh, I was in a soldier needs some writing words on toilet paper in the gulag, yeah. you know. Yeah. To get yeah. How was he able to get seems. I mean, again, I, this is, it's, I, I have to give some more thought to that. But it seems, with what I've read, that Paul was under some kind of house arrest that allowed him a lot of latitude. Remember, people were allowed to come and visit him. You know, Timothy, when you come, make sure you bring my coat. It's cold, right? And also bring my books. Right? So, I mean, it wasn't you know, these sort of visions that we have of a Roman dungeon, you know, or something. It, it wasn't that for Paul. I thought he was in prison and they were just I don't think it was quite like that. I mean, there may have been, there were cases like that where you see in Jerusalem, it's kind of interesting, actually, they were harder on him in Jerusalem than they were in Rome when it came to his imprisonment. Um, but I think his actual imprisonment in Rome, because he enjoyed the benefits of being a Roman citizen, and you can recall, Paul, Paul will, hap, will happily pull that one out of the holster if he needs to. You can't do it, I'm a Roman citizen, right? And so then, he, and they're like, oh, well, I didn't know that. you got to go to Rome now. So um, I think his citizenship probably allowed him a latitude to write and to send letters and to communicate. And, I mean, obviously it did. Yeah. Well, it was almost as if he'd been arrested but not tried. And it took a long time to, for, the, yeah. for the trial, if you will, to take place. And he was yeah. uh, released on his own recognizance to some extent. Yes, that's right. And the trial did take a, take a while, but once the trial actually ended, then it was over. Yeah. Oh, one more question. Anybody want to fire one more? Don. 
I mean, I just, it's, yes, I think I would subscribe. You know, so I, I would want to recognize, I mean, there are other places to go. So, you know, I don't, want to, I don't want to be overly reductionistic in that regard. But at the same time, I think that's right. I mean, I think we have a portrait here of the cosmic Christ, which is why I want to do more of it next week. Because he's going to move from Jesus being the Lord over all creation quite naturally into Jesus' role as the Lord over the church. And then he goes on to say, and he's the head of the body. So that we see now an organic relationship between the body and the head and the universe. I mean, it's, it's, there's a lot here. I mean, the depths, I don't think, could really be mined on this. There's just a lot. It's one thing to understand words, right? We get words, they're there. But to begin to press beyond the words to what they signify, right? This is the class, this is Augustine 101. That to move to what the words signify, that, that's where the treasure trove I think, resides. And Colossians 1 is an ongoing repository of theological reflection. Yeah. Next week. Jerry, I'll do one-on-one with you. See you all. <laughs>